Welcome to the No Shame Podcast. Still shooting from um, lockdown isolation, but we've got some more um, news. At least we have a plan now to be able to get out of this. So uh, today we have um, Dr. Jerome Fennell. He's the head of the disease uh, infectious disease control here in Tallahustable. Um, I've got him on the podcast just to, to answer some questions for us. Some stuff we've seen floating around on social media. Um, obviously, when when a new phase I think gets uh, gets announced, there's going to be more questions that come with that. And um, I don't think we got a lot of question a lot of the questions answered. Um, we got the bullet points, but I can see lots of questions. I can see a lot of worried people out there, a lot of worried um, business owners, especially in the fitness industry. Um, and I'm going to try and get some of the answers uh, today off um, of Jerome. Jerome is um, also a pub belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, he actually might be more now. I'll look confirm him when, uh, when he's on. Um, happy birthday to myself. So it's my 32nd birthday today, shooting from the podcast studio. Um on my own, I remember actually when I was setting up this building, sitting out there, um, I was putting up a prefab, I think it was, um, so a wall, a studded petition wall, and it was my birthday as well, so um, maybe it's starting to blend in that uh, I spend my birthdays in this building. Um, on my birthday, I, I also, uh, this is a story I think a lot of people know, but um, my, my name is is Patrick Pierce Houlihan, so I was named after Patrick Pierce, so one of the rebels that was, um, the, the, that led the, the uh, 1916 Easter um, Rebellion. I always had a, a connection with this kind of, because of my name, before I even knew the history of, of the Rising, so I've always had a, an admiration for, for, for Patrick Pierce. Um, when you read some of his stuff that he wrote before he was executed, so... He was in a cell with uh, next to his, his brother Willie the night before. He didn't think his uh, brother Willie was going to be executed. Um, but unfortunately, I won't know the story. But if you want to go down a little rabbit hole, um, no matter what country ours, we've got listeners in, in America, all over the place, um, New Zealand, Sweden, Finland. If you find that you just you like a little bit of history, go down and discover this man. Um, you'll, you'll, uh, there's a poem that he wrote um, on the day of his death. Uh, amazing. It's the day he was executed. So he was executed in Kamenum Jail on the, at 6 o'clock in the morning. So at dawn, um, and then that would have followed the the rest of the the, the revolutionaries um, to be executed after that. But um, Podrick being the first one, um, it's a, it's an amazing. There's some amazing stories in there. The story between um, Grace Clifford and um, uh, Plunkett as well is a, is another story that came from that 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 uh, passage of time that has that has stayed with people for a long time. It's a, there's a the song obviously Grace. If people have heard it, is is amazing. I'm going off the subject in anyway, but um. If you feel like yeah, you you want you have you want to have a little look down something that's 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 an amazing story the relationship between Podrick and his mother and um, we only posted it on my Instagram today it's a, it's a letter to his mother before he died and um, there's a part in it where he says to his mother um this t- uh, picture like this don't be sad that this is our um calling from God if you must so we have to sacrifice us for for the greater of other people and um, he he ran a a, a a Gaelic school so. Podrick's idea was about bringing the traditions of uh, Gaelic Ireland back to life, and especially the language, um, St. Enders, which is not too far from the studio here. Um, another amazing building and an amazing part of the man's legacy. Um, he writes in the letter about um, the will of his brother, of, of, of seeing his brother and the people, or the, the students of St. Ende, um, going on in the future and doing well. Um, to know the story and know where that man must have stood. Um, the, the people in Dublin didn't didn't uh, respond well to the rebels either. So at this time they would have been they would have been seen as people that were like thugs and rogues. Um, it was only until the executions of them that people started to see the stories that, that I'm that I'm talking about here. Um it's an incredible story, but it's definitely a time that uh, I think the whole world can recommend where a guy or it can um 
remember a man that was a, 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 a tremendous leader and somebody that was willing to put his life before everything else. I think a lot of people uh, talk about this or, or uh, a lot of films that we see are fantasized about this, but this is an actual story of this. Um, won't keep blabbering on. And anyway, so I'm going to get Jerome on now and I'm going to ask him some questions about this. So uh, Jerome is a really cool guy. He used to train running back in the day and um, he, had, he had a podcast with Lachlan Giles there not too long ago as well, but um, it was hard to get somebody on. Um, out of the, the health sector to be honest maybe because they're so busy at the moment as well but um, a lot of people don't want to say the wrong things as well so um, that has to be respected and I respect Jerome coming on but Jerome's a straight shooter and I'm going to try and get some good answers off him so here we go hey Jerome how are you getting on my friend hey Paddy how are things I haven't seen you in a while I've seen you um, in social media land um, so I've got to kind of see you still going along so um, I know you're still alive and you're breathing and you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. Well, too bad. That's the good thing about social media, I have to say. It's one of them things where you can nearly pick up in someone's life where you've left off, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's it's good for keeping contact. I suppose it's got its downsides too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, like everything. I was explaining before you came on, so um, you are head of the infectious uh, disease control in Tala Hospital, am I right? So I'm a consultant clinical microbiologist and I'm looking after infection control, which is kind of prevention and reduction in infections throughout the hospital. Right, so this is definitely your department that you've been dealing with the next last little while. Well, it's certainly kept us really busy. Now, I'm not a virologist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not on NEFIT or anything like that. So I'm not like a national expert or anything, but I suppose I have, I have some half-educated kind of uh, assessment of what's going on. Uh, the reason why I want to get your assessment is because obviously there's a lot of people that um, in, 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 in my land of, of jiu-jitsu and uh, gyms and stuff like that. So we'll get to that in any way in a little bit. Yeah. But um, you yourself, um, you know exactly what we're talking about when, when we're talking about close contact with jiu-jitsu. Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's what kept me sane for the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah so um, you're, you're a purple belt now? Yeah, um, I got my purple belt from John about two years ago. Oh, incredible, incredible. Are you still training? Well, not for the last couple of months, but up until then, yeah. Um, yeah. So I've been training with Chris Bow and Gracie Baja. Yeah, Chris is a Chris is an absolute mean man. Well, when I mean that, I mean jujitsu wise in a in 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 the world ways, he's absolute gentle joint. Exactly. But yeah. No, he's he's a mean man. Um. So where where do you think we are with all of this at the moment? Um, I was supposed to I, I, I announced that I was going to be talking to it to a doctor on this about and trying to get some answers, um, especially for the community. Um, but last week we were supposed to have this, and I think I think it was wise for us to wait till now because yeah. we're to a whole new plan. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Um, this is something like nothing else I've ever had to deal with, or nothing else any of us have ever had to deal with. Um, in terms of the curve, I think we're probably just around the peak or just past the peak. Um, so I think our first case was the 29th of February. So what was that about two months ago? So, I, you know, it's roughly same again, hopefully until things uh, get close to zero. Um, but obviously now we're going to start this whole new process of lifting restrictions gradually. Um, and, you know, I think 10th of August is the, the hopefully we'll reach stage five. But I think it has to be said that the plan that came out this week is a best case scenario. There's a real chance that we'll, you know, be hit by a second or a third wave. And I suppose my fear will be going into the winter that people will be completely fed up. They won't want to do social distancing. 
we'll be we'll have the flu season we'll have the covid season we'll have all the normal winter problems um and then the hospital will be potentially overwhelmed or overrun yeah, that's definitely something that we've kind of seen in the future myself that because i like um we have you've, there's obviously there's so many people you mentioned the word they're getting fed up in a way and it's hard to be motivated on something um I think when I can kind of see a goal in something, I think that might be to do with being an athlete um, or, or just jiu-jitsu, that there's no problem sticking my head down and swinging the axe, you know what I mean? If you must yeah. keep going. Out. That was the good news out of Friday is when that report came up. At least there's a plan and there's hopefully light at the end of the tunnel. Um, but yeah, we'll have to see what happens. And I suppose we have the advantage of looking at other countries that are a couple of weeks ahead of us. You know, countries like uh, Germany and Spain and Italy um, and seeing what happens as they lift the restrictions and you know whether we need to roll back some of our uh, some of the change, you know restrictions that have been lifted. Uh, you know we may have to fall back to where we were. That that is the good thing. I think the the world has seen a, 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 so many different approaches to this, which is um, as I, I can imagine being an alien looking in. You would be thinking like, would they not hold on? Would they not pick up the phone and communicate with each other? Because there's so many different approaches to it, isn't there? Yeah, and not only, I mean, I suppose every country is a little different in terms of their health structures and their the, the age breakdown of the population um, and, you know, what's available to them in terms of resources. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the differences. Uh, and the other thing is we're all competing against each other, you know, for PPE and for the reagents and the, the testing. Um, and that's definitely led to, to problems. Um, and I think we probably shouldn't be comparing ourselves too much to the UK and the US because they aren't, you know, I suppose we always compare ourselves to them because we share a common language. Um, and obviously a lot of us have lived there, um, but the, they're not doing it well. And it's probably not the standard we should be comparing ourselves to. That's, that, that's a great point. That, that's what I was going to lead on to it because um, I, do, I do see a lot of that as like, yeah, but hold on, look over there. And it's like, um, I don't think, I think when when, when this, if we, we're looking at numbers and people and we're not, we're not talking about climates and stuff like that where it's worse in a, in a warmer climate or it's um, it's worse in a cooler climate because some viruses can do that, can't they, where they, they can survive some places. Absolutely, and maybe some of that will come out. Um, and, you know, and there's this hope that things will, that the virus won't survive as well in our summertime. Uh, but we don't know that for sure and it's not something we can rely on. Yeah, because that could be something weird. It was the opposite, because some viruses are, are like um, thriving in them uh, situations, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, generally, the colder it is, the the better it is for them to survive, and that's why we get all the the winter respiratory viruses. And I suppose the the hotter it is, and the more UV light you get from the sun, the more virus breakdown you get. Um, but obviously, like you said, the, there's no hard and fast rule for each virus. Like you know, they all have their own different ways of uh, surviving. Um, so for yourself, um, I hope you don't mind me saying, um, you you had contracted COVID nineteen. Yeah, so I'm back to work now about two or three weeks ago, um, and yeah, it was rough. Um, so the first thing I noticed, my head was kind of a bit heavier than normal. Kind of had that heavy, kind of feverish kind of feeling, um, and I was like, "Hold on a minute, uh, is this it?" Um, so I got myself tested, uh, and that came back positive. So I didn't go back into work until I got the results. And um, yeah, I mean, it felt fine for the first couple of days. And then I'd, I had more kind of gastroenteritis type symptoms and probably the worst headaches of my life. Fever is up to about 39. So and it took me a good two weeks to get over it. So, you know, it was rough. 
Um, definitely not like any flu or cold I've ever had before. Yeah, not like a round with uh, Chris Bow, no? No, that would be uh, a lot quicker and uh, probably more merciful would be over quickly. <laughs> so um, so, so you you just finished the uh, shift, am I right in saying that as well? You just well kept... I went in to, to work this afternoon, yeah, just to... So what that like, everybody's on the outside now, so people would ask me in a way, well, what's a lot uh, of fighters and um, back in the day, like, what's it like to go in there? Like, like now, like obviously we're all looking at the outside and what's it like to... So, I suppose, first of all, I'm, I'm not really, I mean, I see patients and I might put on PPE, but that's not all I do. I'm also involved in management type stuff and overseeing the lab and meetings with the infection control nurses. And so... Um, so the patient is part of my my work, but I'm not all I'm not like a, you know the frontline nurses and doctors who are in there you know every day in and out uh, all day. Um, so what's it like? Um, it's been very different. Um, the workload has completely shifted there for a few weeks. So normally we have the full range of different infections to deal with. Um, this just went pretty much pure COVID, like our. ICU seem to be almost completely patient with COVID. And I think there's one message that really needs to get out there. I'm worried that people who need to be in hospital are afraid to come to hospital. Um, you know, there's, we aren't seeing the normal strokes and heart attacks and appendicitis and all the normal things that people come to hospital with. And I think we're just worried that there are people at home who are suffering that are just afraid to come home. And, you know, they would be better off coming to hospital and getting looked after. I mean, we've had to deal with COVID and it's really taken up a lot of our work. Um, but there are certainly other there are awards in every hospital now that don't, don't have COVID and, you know, we are able to look after the, the more urgent cases. So I suppose I would urge anybody who needs to go to hospital to go to the hospital um, because if you don't, your outcome might be worse. Yeah, and that is because there's going to be obviously, a, there's going to be a byproduct to, through all of this on all sides, isn't it? It's going to, after a little while, it's going to start turning into mental health problems and um, people that are, um, sorry, um, re say recovering, I don't know, recovering alcoholic, all sorts of stuff, you know what I mean? Um, it's going to be a lot of, like, like obviously, just there's mad voices in domestic violence. There's um, kids that would have went to school and, and that's where they would have got, um, they would have got their, their breakfast with breakfast clubs and stuff like that. So it, it does start to linking into other kind of graphs, if you must, doesn't it, um, as the time goes on. And the real concern would be down the line, um, if you know we had a second or a third wave and the hospital was overwhelmed, then the people who are, are going to die are not just the COVID, they'll also be the ones who need their normal care and the hospital won't be able to provide it because they're overrun. You know, the heart attacks and the strokes and all the rest. Um, so I hear people keep they keep fighting this corner of um, sure it's just a normal flu and they keep throwing up the same numbers of flus. Um, I seen something the other day and it was. Um, I think the debt rate last year in Ireland was 30,000 or something like that. And it was similar, close, or um, it was a similar number now. But that, that obviously, that's a full year. And it hasn't gone through the, the winter flu season, meeting the COVID at the same time. I mean, the, the flu numbers, I'd have to look it up. But I think we see maybe 200 deaths a year from flu. Um, but the, we don't always test everyone. Uh, I think the mortality from this is about 20 times worse than the flu is our kind of estimation. Um, you know, I've never seen a virus that behaves like this. And even personally, when you get this virus, you don't, psychologically, it's different. You know, when you get a flu, you're probably going to be fine. You know, you might have a rough week or two. But something like this, 
you start thinking, are you going to be one of the unlucky ones, particularly if you're older and have any health issues? Um, so thankfully I wasn't. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a totally different ballgame to the normal flu. And I mean, the flu itself is severe, particularly the elderly. Um, but, you know, this is on a, a whole different level. So um, there was cases of um, the COVID-19 in Ireland, I think, before the the time that they'd been confirmed as COVID-19, they, 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 the girl had landed and, and, and went up. Um, so they've said that there was people that might have had COVID-19 before that, um, and that there's a possibility it could have been in places before. I think our first case that we knew about was February 29th was when it was reported. I think there was that lady who had travelled to the north, like you said, from Italy, I think, who was possibly positive before that. I can't remember exactly. Um, so as far as we know, that's when it started. It's possible that there were cases uh, a week or two before, but uh, and I think the virus reference lab in UCD were quite quick to get a test up and running. Like, the, I think the sequence only became available in January, and, and I think they had a test up and running about a month later. Um, at the end of, say, I think it was maybe even halfway through February, I got, I got a flu drum, and uh, many have said it like me, and I'm not one of these tinfoil hat people that try to find as many, but I, like, I don't really get sick. I don't get sick a lot, you know what I mean? Even if I do get flus, um, it's, it's usually okay, you know, I'm, I'm all right. Um, but I got a flu, and my temperature was up to 40 degrees. Um, I think I recorded, like, my, my, my young son had, had it, Chelsea had it, um, and we were sick for three weeks. There was a day where I had slept through the whole day and Chelsea got my class covered and all for me and I didn't even really know and yeah. sweating really bad. I never had that like this in my life. Now, if I had been in a situation where the three of us were that sick and it was now, I would be panicking. Yeah. If someone had even told me that people like people die of the flu um, and the three of us were sick, I would have like, well, it's never going to be us. Um, yeah. USA. Um, when did you say that was in February or January? It was um, in the middle of February, it was. So say maybe the start of February, middle of February. I had it for three weeks now. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to know, maybe, especially if you're a politician shaking everybody's hand. Uh, <laughs> Don't call me that. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a good fair chance that was the flu as well. Um, we probably won't know. Maybe when there's a proper antibody test, um, you could be tested and see, but, you know... I don't know whether that that really was this or whether it was the flu. I suppose if you if you come down with COVID again in the meantime, we'll know it wasn't. Um, but hopefully, for your sake, that's the end of it. I, I hope, like, because um, immunity as well. Um, it was actually somebody in a shop and said that today that I was talking to, and he was like, "I think we had it." Hopefully, because they came out with some. Uh, they only released something the other day. He said that where there was a possibility that you could be immune to it. Has that been discovered yet, or was that? Is that just a supermarket talk? I suppose there's two really important things we need to figure out. I suppose, first of all, um, can we be immune to it? Like, you know, there's all sorts of different viruses, and some like winter vomiting, you're probably only immune for about three weeks. And some like chickenpox, you're probably immune for the rest of your life. Um, so we don't know where on that spectrum this is going to be, how long, um, you know, if there is any immunity, first of all, and second of all, how long it's going to last. Um, so that really remains to be determined. And the other thing is, even if we can't become immune to the virus, that doesn't mean that we couldn't get a vaccine down the line that would work. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things still up in the air. Um, if there was a, an idea of you becoming immune to it, would you still be thinking it would be smart for somebody to be or to be eligible for a, a vaccine? Would they? 
I, I think they would probably encourage people to get the vaccine because I don't know whether we'll know how long the immunity lasts. If it's a case like, um, you know, chickenpox that we feel the vac the immunity will be lifelong. But to be honest, it's going to take years to figure out how long the natural immunity lasts or else if it doesn't last, then we'll find out much earlier, of course. That's the thing about these things. It has to take time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a lot that's going to be revealed in the next year or so. Um, so regarding um, the fourth phase, so the fourth phase is, um, let me have, I have them here, it's, um, uh, so there's, uh, the people from different households are able to, to meet with each other. So, um, okay, I'll see if I can. Okay, I can read, I can read this. So phase one, it says, um, allow outdoor meetings between people from different households, open up okay. childcare for healthcare workers, phased return of outdoor workers, um, open retailers, which are primarily outdoor for those which were open during the first level of restrictions, e.g. opticians, um, opening of certain outdoor public amenities. Um, yeah, so I think it's the first stage. It's going to be reviewed every three weeks. And I think they're still hoping people will you know, be able to talk to each other, but still stay two meters apart. Um, that would be my impression from what you were saying there. Um, so in the outdoors, does do, do the virus act different? Do they, do, they, do they drop quicker? Do they blow away? Do they? I suppose that, you know, you don't have walls, so the virus isn't confined. You know, the virus should diffuse more, and if people are far enough apart, there should be less of a risk. Um, before I even went into these phases, I should have asked you another question about the testing, because you mentioned the question, um, testing. Um, Gonna butcher this word I am for sure. <laughs> uh, is it a truck, a tricky army, um, lazage or something like that? That they it's called, really. Lazage, is it? Oh, that's the one. That's the one. Oh, even if that was wrong, four to me, wrong, I wouldn't have gone. No worries. Uh, so your trachea is your, your breathing tube, the one you, you try and choke in jiu jitsu sometimes, yeah, uh, in the guillotine or whatever. Someday again, yeah. Uh, so lavage is, is French for a washout, uh, and basically they flush a bit of saline down the the pipes and then they suck it back up and then they send that off to the lab. So that's what they would call a deep respiratory specimen. So you're getting a, a nice deep sample. Uh, and sometimes what we see is the nose swab isn't good enough. And we see a lot of patients who might come back negative on a nose swab, but if you get a tracheal lavage or a deep respiratory specimen, then it comes back positive. And, so. and when testing for that genome, are they actually looking for, now I'm going to sound stupid probably, uh, no. this, but the actual, um, Corona, the, the COVID-19, the actual thing that we're all seeing on the sign, which is so the... What, it's um, basically, it's using technology that won the Nobel Prize. It's something called PCR, which is polymerase chain reaction. And all you need to know is that it uses, it's able to pick up a very specific piece of nucleic acid, and then it multiplies it out, and then it's able to, to pick it up. So basically what it's detecting is the kind of genetic code of the virus. So it's not picking up the virus itself, but if the code is there, the virus should have been there as well. Now the problem is, if that virus is dead or broken down, you may still be able to pick up the code, that you know, RNA or that genetic code of the virus. So, um, so it's possible that, I think they say, you know, you should be isolated for two weeks, um, but you're, you will probably continue to be positive even when you're no longer infectious. So you will be slightly so you, you'll be positive for longer than you are infectious, is what I'm trying to say. And would, would that be like the, the normal protocol for, for testing for something like this? 
Um, because I thought I read somewhere that the guy that he created the test um, said that the, it's probably not the best way to test for um, this this virus. I suppose it's probably it's very specific in that it's very good at picking up this virus and not being confused by another virus. Um, it's probably quite sensitive, but it's probably not sensitive enough. You know, if people don't swab themselves deeply enough, or if it's gone into the the lungs rather than the the nose and throat, you might not pick it up. Um, I suppose what would be ideal would be if we could pick up the virus itself and say the virus is there and the virus is intact. But that's much more elaborate. That's probably much more expensive. You have to grow the virus. That's not something that's practical on a large scale. You know, you can't get a swab and grow a virus and wait a week to grow up the virus on, you know, thousands and thousands of people. It's just not possible. Um, so it is important to get that 48 toner, uh, hour turnaround on the test, and is it for the numbers to be accurate as well? Um, I suppose you're trying to shut this down, you're trying to track it, so time is of the essence. So in something like this, when we're trying to reduce the number of people who get exposed, the sooner you can find a source and find out who their contacts are and isolate those and you know take them out of circulation, stop them from infecting other people, the better. So the faster, the better. Sorry, I'll go back to the phases with you. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Thanks for answering that because I, I just I had that in my head and I was like, I'm gonna I'm not gonna get this word, but um, yeah. I answer my question because when I was reading up on that, um, it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, what they were extracting, what are they extracting the COVID, or what are they extracting? Uh, what you were saying, the genetic um, coding of what it is. Um, so phase two um, allow visits to households, including to homes of over seventy year olds. Uh, travel to be extended to 20 kilometers of your home, uh, develop plans and support to open up businesses with consideration for safety of staff and customers, open small retail outlets and marts where social distancing can be observed, open public libraries, uh, immediate families and close, fr so flow, uh, close friends can attend funerals. So phase two on 8th of June. Now I will, um, I will say what you said as well, that this is a very kind of, to be able to go to the date and, and, and this all to happen now is is kind of far fetched at the time. Um, I think they I think the phrase they used at the beginning is it's a living document and that it's going to be open to review and you know things could change as you know things become apparent whether that's changes in people's behaviour or whether that's um, increase in virus numbers or you know numbers going into intensive care or you know if the hospitals are under pressure. Um, if this happens, do, does that paragraph mean that like um, grandkids and, and grandparents um, can meet if, if, if all going well? Uh, I'd have to go and read it again, but I think, you know, I think initially people will be able to meet, but, you know, they would hope that you would uh, still try and social distance as much as possible. Now, I know it's not going to be, it's going to be difficult at times, and I would hope that people would still try and just, minimize the the things they do so not see everybody and everyone and maybe stick to the same people and uh, you know, it's I think it's it's going to be difficult um, to try and follow these things for as long as it's going to take hard not to hug your granny isn't it <laughs> yeah, absolutely and you know we can understand that but at the same time I think when things are, are finally lifted, I'd imagine people will just want to go bananas and go partying, and that's probably not what we need right now. It's going to lead to things taking off again. 
my own mother, I'm 32 today, and she said to me, I can't give you a hug, and it's breaking me heart. And I was like, you should have just said nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Up and down the country, yeah. I think even in, especially, I don't know, even in the Irish culture, your granny and your granddad, and you yeah, know, um, absolutely. But you know, it is hard for everyone. But at the same time, you don't want to give them a virus. You don't want to send them into hospital, or you don't want to end up in hospital yourself. Um, uh, and that's what we're trying to do: is trying to, to, like they were saying, flatten the curve and reduce the number of lives lost. Um, so phase three is um, projected for the 29th of June. It says, allow small gatherings, uh, open of creches, child minors and preschools for children of essential workers in phased manner. Return to work for those with le low levels of interaction. Open non-essential retailers, outlets with street level entrance and exit and open playgrounds. Mm -hmm. So um, basically, you know, at each stage where kind of seeing how it goes and you're hoping that the virus is a present at a low enough level that these kind of things can happen without significant spread. Uh, so you hope that the, the numbers are still are pretty low and uh, you know if the virus is rare enough things like that can happen without it spreading. Because um, I think with the, the playgrounds um, it lives a lot on you know, aluminium and stuff like this uh, for days. Am I right saying that? I've seen a few different papers. I think it's kind of around two or three days. Um, but you know, if things are cleaned, you know, it's that'll that should remove it. It's not a particularly tough virus. You know, every uh, disinfectant should pretty much work against it. Um, you know, it's in terms of environmental survival, it's not particularly tough or different to anything else. Um, I, uh, a nurse did a great video on it and um, was amazed about contamination. She put paint on her hands and then the other phone and and with the table she was covered. So yeah, yeah, I think that, even that's one thing really fine when you're putting on the PPE is it is so hard to do anything and particularly there's a lot of the um, intensive care patients, for example, they find that they do better if they're ventilated on the front, so they're kind of lying on the front. Um, so they have, to, so instead of lying on the backs, they do better on their fronts. That called proned. Proning, exactly. Yeah. So you know the staff have to come to these patients. It takes about eight or nine people, full PPE, to turn these patients around, and that has to be done. I think it's pretty much every four hours or something like that. So, so I mean that's nearly a full-time job in itself. If you have an ICU of ten or twenty beds to move people every four hours, so, so that's and then you're, you know, you're contaminating your your equipment with all this contact and then it's it's hard to do what you're doing and, and not contaminate yourself um, you know it, and they have this kind of buddy system so if you're going into intensive care there's somebody who watches you as you put it on and it's so hard not to touch your face or not to touch your mask and uh, I saw one guy on uh, um, the web and I think he had taped his shoulders so he couldn't actually physically, uh, taped his elbows so he couldn't actually touch his face. Um, so I mean, it's, I mean, if you had flippers and a scuba tank, it wouldn't be much more awkward. Like it's, you know, you're trying to do all the normal things you need to do for patients anyway, you know, putting in lines and helping them breathe or giving them oxygen and all that kind of thing. And trying to do all that and not contaminate yourself is, is quite difficult. Um, so while we're on it, actually talking about the PPE, um, every time you touch uh, a patient, does, is the PPE have to be redone, rechanged, or does it have to, you have to be? 
So, um, yeah, if you're going to touch a patient, you really should change your PPE in between every patient because you might be protected, but you could easily bring, if you didn't change your PPE, you could easily bring the bugs from that patient onto the next patient. So the eight people, eight people there that we were saying, that you were saying about where they're prone, because I've actually read a paper on that prone as well, and a woman was saying um, they, sh they should be prone, but it, it, there's always these, there's these parts, there's reasons why, am I right in saying that there's not, because um, they said that they always, uh, back in the day, I think she was saying, we always proned um, people when they came in, we put them down, and okay. for people, especially with... Um, is it tiring or something like that? Is what when they their lungs have tired from trying to fight and stuff like that? When they put them onto the the, the ventilator, just the, the paper that I read. And but then the the argument to it was the the amount of people and the amount of PPE. Someone did the maths on it. Per yeah. If you turn ten people, that's like yeah. And there's nine people changing their gloves, changing their aprons, and everything else. It, yeah, no, it adds up and. I mean, thankfully, we haven't had a shortage of PPE yet. Um, I think it's been a little bit close, and I think they've, from what I can tell, the, you know, the country's gone to enormous efforts to try and source it. And there are kind of nightmare stories about, I think, spending millions on a plane full of PPE, and then it nearly pretty much gets hijacked by somebody with a higher bid and it goes to another country. Um, and I think, you know, we really probably need to work on becoming more self-sufficient in terms of our own PPE. I know there's a company in Limerick and there's been a lot of people producing their own things. I know there's a, um, some people have been pretty creative with 3D printers in terms of creating masks and things like that. So, you know, it's great to see the teamwork and the organization and everybody working together and pulling in the same direction, which is, you know, something we haven't seen on this level before. Um, but I think in the long run, we're probably going to need a lot of PPE, even when this goes away. Um, I think some of the habits will remain because it might be gone, but it, you know it will probably still be always be with us to some extent. Um, so yeah, we need more PPE, and I suppose there's a business opportunity for people there in the country. Um, you know, I think whatever you can produce will probably buy it at this stage. Um, yeah. Many people have stepped up, haven't they? In that way, has Connor been with Tally yet? No. Uh, not to my knowledge, no. I'm sure you're on his rounds. I'm sure you're on his If he finds out you're there as well, he'll want to see you, Jerome, I'm pretty sure. Connor never forgets a face. Um, so, phase four here. So, um, the opening of creches, choir miners and preschools for children um, of all other workers on gradually increasing basis. Um, return to work for those who cannot work from home. Gradual easing of restrictions for higher risk services, e.g. hairdressers, um, opening of museums galleries and places of worship and uh, travel extended to outside the region so would that mean um, that uh, 20th of july would probably be the earliest that you could i don't know book a holiday if you are a gambler yeah well, i suppose i think that a lot of people should probably have their holidays at home this year uh, the countries you go to will probably depend what their rates are like and there's probably a fair chance that if you go abroad you'll have to stay in quarantine for two weeks when you come back um, depending where you go. Is that the case now? What's that? Is that the case now that if you're alive in Ireland that you have to quarantine? I think pretty much. From I'd have to. I'm not sure if it's true for every country, but I, I think so. Yeah. Because I've heard in Australia when uh, a few weeks ago, if you landed, it was literally the military and they were taking you to places for quarantine for 14 days. So I mean, I think here you probably go to your own house and you're told to stay in your own house. Um, but yeah, in some countries. Yeah, and whether they police that well enough, I don't know. 
I don't know. I, th- I think I think there's some kind of there is some leaks in it. Um, just as a as a citizen, as somebody looking in, um, obviously not all of them, but um, the obviously the situation with, with people coming in to, to pick the, the the workers coming in. Now, obviously, I have no problem with any workers coming in, but uh, to the country. Um, my whole question about that whole situation was um, if somebody, say a Ryanair worker, had COVID and had passed it to one of the people that were actually travelling to the country and then they did quarantine for 14 days, is there a possibility 180 people could have got COVID? Now, obviously, it's over now because of the time, I think, passed. But to me, I know what our problems, I know, I didn't see this in the way other people seen it. But that was my thing of like, but could everybody not now go together and then contaminate each other for 14 days? So say a bus coming from an airport, um, as we were saying there, we landed and then you get the bus with 20 other people and then we all go and um, self-isolate. Does that is that um is that enough to kill the virus in that group of people? I would hesitate to give hesitate to give any guarantees. Um, you know, this virus has never given us any breaks. Um, the scary bit is it seems like there are people who can spread this virus without actually having any symptoms, which is unusual. And that makes it so much harder to track. Um, so, you know, we can't screen everybody who doesn't have symptoms. It's just not possible. There's too many people and you'd have to screen them all the time. So um, we have to focus on the people who actually have symptoms. And I think we, as these, we go through these stages, we need to have a really aggressive, uh, rapid system that will, if somebody has any signs of a flu or a cold, they can get a test, get a result quickly, and if it's positive, then public health are called in. You know that person is sent home, and uh, you know, and their contacts are watched and asked to isolate, so that you know you can shut this down as quickly as possible. Um, is that, is that, I was watching Monsters Inc. the other day. Do you know that we were okay. bad? Uh, you've ever seen it? No, but I, I've. Heard um, it. But it's a, it's actually it's a funny scene that there is when a kid gets into the actual factory and a kid is the most infectious thing in Monsterland. Okay. It's like helicopters, this guy gets shaved, everything. I was like, hopefully this is not the the, the name for this new normal. What they're talking about is um because it's actually pretty funny. But it's um it's a good thing. So phase five. So here we are. So I've actually took I took this from the the HSE uh, document. So. This is this the, the other broke down of this actually has the wrestling in it and stuff like that stuff that we've been keeping our eye on. And rugby was actually what I was looking at because I was thinking, hey, if you can do a scrum, if you can put your head, in, you know, you can, you can stroke, you can uh, strangle somebody. And um, so phase five, the tenth of August. So all going well, everybody, everything does well. And I won't just say everybody because um, decisions being made as well still have to tell uh, what the outcome of them is going to be. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's like it's your fault. It's it's we depend on what happens. If everybody goes to pub, yes, it's your fault. If everybody's uh, not keeping social distance, it's your fault. And we will be watching. Um, but it says allow so uh, larger social gatherings or return to work across all sectors on phased basis, commencing at the beginning of an academic year, uh, twenty twenty to twenty one, uh, opening of primary and secondary schools and third level institutions. Further easing of restrictions on higher risk retail services. So I think that's that's us in the in the idea of that. 
Um, here's a little plan that for our community. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the plan, and then you can tell me whether it's a, it's a good idea or not. Um, the, you you mentioned the idea of units, so the little um, the the cells that you were talking about, as in you just go in and one covers the other, sort of buddy system. Um, I know the the radiographers have been doing it in a way where there's five people in a group, and if one gets sick, one person has to test all of them off at the time. And um, we we've we're going to trains here, and um, we were thinking. If we went back at the 10th of August and we did it where there was one class per evening in per area, so um, to start off for the first month, and then you had a system where there was three people, so you were only allowed to train with them three people within a class of, say, 20 people. So if you rolled with um, them three people and, say, one person, we could keep an eye on each other, like the buddy system you're talking about, and if one got a little bit sick, we... We do the monsters ink on him, you know. We drag him. <laughs> we, yeah. we he he's not allowed to train then, or the three of them have to not train then for fourteen days, etc. Um, is that a good idea for the first month rather than us all? We as a community, I think it's better that we all come up with some sort of idea together, so we're not all in the. I think that, I think that makes sense. I mean, by that stage, we're stage five, and in theory, you're allowed to to roll. As normal, you know, and hopefully we'll get there on that date. But you know, it may not happen then. Um, but I think it makes sense to try and restrict the number of contacts, because I think um, when you think about the amount of contact you have when you're doing ten rounds with ten different people, or you know, winner stays on and you change every two minutes, like well, that's you an awful lot of contact. And go upstairs and do jujitsu. Yeah. I was I was picturing the paint when that was happening. I was like, oh no. When that, that nurse was doing the contamination with the paint on her hands. I was like, yeah. imagine covering someone in red paint. That's exactly what I said before, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry, that was, you said that, yeah. That You're actually the guy. One person was covered in paint and you went through all the normal rounds and you looked at everyone at the end of the hour, two hours, I'm sure you'd see red everywhere. Like, yeah. Uh, it was it was the your your podcast with the so you you know I'm I'm pulling this information from good people because I've just literally just referenced oh, just yeah. <laughs> um so when people go back my my advice would be in, uh, in as a community to go back as a in a joint united united approach because there is the case where uh, everybody goes back one person gets an actual flu and yeah they they they're closed again am I right to say that. Yeah, and I mean, we probably will need some sort of system where we can test people in the community quickly. Um, and whether, yeah, I think Ireland has done a reasonably good job in terms of the number of tests we can do at the moment, but probably need to be expanded even further. Uh, but I think it makes sense to start off with small groups and maybe even just record who you roll with or, you know, set up a group of four or six people that stick together for that week or two weeks or whatever. And, uh, you just roll with them, and you know, and then if somebody does develop symptoms, you know straight away who are the most likely people that you've given it to or that have given it to you, uh, and that would certainly help with the contact tracing, and it would try and at least limit it somewhat instead of one person giving it to twenty people on the on the day. You know, it might be only one or two. Um, and the the idea of jujitsu being. Like if if there was a herd immunity ever that it would work if this this, this herd immunity thing and I know it has worked it with the, with other viruses um a lot of them would be with, with vaccines with chickenpox and stuff like that am I right in saying that that the, a community builds it up and yeah 
and, and spent on itself. Um, if there ever was one, you would notice it in a jiu-jitsu gym <laughs> because they'd oh, probably oh, be the oh, first to have immunity, like because they've been so exposed to other people. Yeah, I I was in I was in the long mile gym with yourself, so I don't think I catch anything anymore. <laughs> think that yeah, um, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of things we don't have immunity like. Um, various bacteria and things like that that can keep coming back. So if we if we have immunity, well and good. Uh, hopefully it'll last a long time, and then you know, things will be able to go back to normal. Whether that's immunity from the infection or from the virus or from the vaccine, who knows? Um, but if not, then yeah, it's going to be tricky. Um, so two more things, and then I'll let you go because I know I know you've had a long day as well. Um, the, the percentage number of the kill rate of this virus in Ireland at the moment, I think it's 5.5, nearly 6% um, with, the, with the maths done rate. Um, are we right in saying that? Um, I think that's the case fatality ratio, which yeah. epidemiologists would probably tell us that's not exactly the mortality rate, but it's, it's a rough kind of uh, estimate, yeah. Um, so but some of the countries have got uh, 1%, 2%. Are we going into this phase now at that number, or is are we over the hill and now looking at these phases? I would imagine the actual percentage doesn't really change. It's the numbers that change. Um, so as you test more, um, I suppose then your percentage will change, and hopefully that would be less. So as you test more, you, you begin to pick up more people who might be much more mildly symptomatic or maybe even not symptomatic. Um, so as the testing expands, you probably reduce that rate a bit. Um, but I think by and large, I think we're doing okay in terms of our mortality figures. I don't think they're worse than other countries and certainly our health system hasn't been overwhelmed, uh, thankfully, and that would certainly have increased our mortality rate. And the last thing what I want you to do is I want you to give all of our love and respect to everybody, uh, all of your colleagues, um, yourself. I, I thank you so much for doing this interview and, and giving us the information because it's um, we're trying to find this and, and translate it in many different ways and, and, and be able to kind of figure out what's going on. Because I think even the people that we would, um, I think you said at the start of this, I'm no expert. Well, I'm definitely not an expert, mm -hmm. you know, so... Um, uh, we're, we're looking for the information and I just give all of our love and our respect to everybody out there who's our absolute heroes and, and uh, we, we are witches. Uh, I'd just like to respond to that in terms of, I mean, we have, you know, fantastic colleagues in Tyler, like in the lab and with the infection control nurses and the ICU staff and the, the junior doctors and the nurses on the wards. Uh, but at the same time, the only reason that our ship has kept afloat is because people have done all the social distancing. I know that's hard. And it's going to be hard to keep going, but that's the only thing that's managed to, to protect us. And we have to thank everybody out there who's done their bit, who hasn't, uh, you know, broken the the terms of their confinement, and uh, have done their bit to help suppress this virus. Because, you know, this has certainly turned out much better for now than what we expected. Um, and I think we had about half the ICU beds that Italy had in terms of per population. So, you know, there's a real risk there to our health service. Now, I think things have improved, and I think probably bringing in the private hospitals and, and that sort of thing has increased our capacity. Um, but there's a real risk that we will be overwhelmed if there's a second or third wave and people don't do the social distancing. Um, so I guess I'd like to thank everybody who has, and I suppose as the measures are lifted, I would urge people to still try and, you know, try and make the follow, you know, trying to make those exceptions that those 
you know, meeting people as the, the exceptional behavior and try and uh, still limit somewhat what they can in terms of the, the number of people they meet and uh, have close contact with um, because that's what's going to keep our, our health service uh, afloat. Well, someday, in probably next summer, we all get to look back at this and say, do you know what, we were strangling each other on this sunny day and it's just steam on the mat. We can all be a member of that madness that was going on. Yeah, well, hopefully, you know, we'll see the end of this nightmare. But Hopefully, hopefully. Jerome, thanks so much. I really okay. appreciate that. I just had to stop. So, there you have it. Um... I had so many more questions I wanted to ask. Uh, I had to respect, like you have to respect Jerome for coming on, and um, it's it's hard to be in a position where someone's asking you questions about the facility that you're around and and what's going on, and and you obviously Jerome doesn't want to offend anybody either. But um, I think he, I think he's a straight shooter and he's a good guy to be able to get that um, to get that information off. So. I'm happy with that. I hope some of you are happy with that. Um, I was going to ask about the, the 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 breaking down of the small groups in training and stuff, but I think he kind of answered that in a way. And I think any of the fitness industries out there that I've been seeing talking on, online about like, well, that means one group and two group and stuff. I think you need to be very careful about how we go forward with this. And I think even inside like strength conditioning, uh, they need to unite together. Uh, dance schools, you know, together. Um, Jiu-jitsu, karate, all of these things. I think a, a, a unity, so a unit, a support as a unit going forward and making the choices as a unit going forward, I think is a, is a smart choice in this one because I think if we do it individually, people are going to end up eating each other. And not only that, they're going to end up blaming each other and, and, and causing all sorts of trouble in in each, each communities that we just I labeled there above. But um, keep safe, look after yourself and Happy birthday to the hooligan. You have it. 32. Never thought I'd make it. We didn't think we'd make it. <laughs> have a good time. Peace.